Hey, we started a, a new series in Romans last week that we've subtitled The Gospel of God Concerning His Son. And uh, this letter of Paul is to the first century Christ followers in the city of Rome, also known as Romans. And uh, I'll let you know, we, we may be on this journey together, oh, maybe a couple of years. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through Romans, um, but we're not going to hurry. Uh, we're going to make our way through this amazing letter. Um, we're going to take some side trips along the way, and we're going to deviate here and there, And uh, but we're just going to keep plodding through. Uh, this is uh, perhaps, um, you know, the, the greatest of all the letters in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul, whom we introduced last week, and you can listen to that message um, online uh, at lpclacy.com. All of our messages are there. Um, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul probably around 57 AD, and he probably wrote it from the city of Corinth in Greece. Um, Paul had never personally met the people to whom he wrote this letter, uh, which is interesting considering some of the things that he says to them about his relationship with them. But he hoped to visit them on uh, in Rome on his way to Spain. We're going to see more of that as we move forward. But but uh, this is kind of towards the end of, if you, if you know Paul's life at all, you know that there were three major missionary journeys that he took. This is towards the end of the, the third of those. And he was on his way, hopefully, in his mind, in his heart, on his way to Spain, uh, which would kind of complete um, the northern Mediterranean mission. And, and that was kind of his goal, to make it up and around the Mediterranean. Uh, and he says in the, later in, the, in this letter, he says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where his name, where Christ's name has never been known. And, and so Spain represented that to him. He was on his way. Rome was on that journey. And uh, Romans is a, a major letter. It's, it's a, a letter of epic proportion. It contains without doubt the fullest expression in one place of Paul's theology. Um, and he probably wrote it, as was his habit, to specifically address issues that he was aware of, concerns of believers who were living there at the epicenter of the Roman Empire. Romans is a letter that keeps on changing the world by changing the lives of people. God has used it over and over again to transform lives of people great and small, famous and obscure. The, the reformer John Calvin spoke of Romans as his entrance to all of the most hidden treasures of Scripture. And the reason that it's so life-changing, the reason it's so history-shaping is that Romans is about the gospel. It's about the gospel. It contains the message that the perfection and the holiness of God has been seen in the life and the death of Jesus Christ, and that this perfection is offered now to us as a free gift of God's grace, and it's received only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. In this letter, Paul is going to demonstrate to us how God, through the gospel, makes sinners like you and me righteous. 
how he imparts to us his perfection, how this incredibly priceless gift of God is is experienced and enjoyed in our lives, how it produces deep transformation in our character, and as a result in our daily lives. Romans is about the gospel. Now the word translated gospel here is euangelion. Will you say that with me? Euangelion. Say it again. Euangelion. I want you to understand this word, so let's break it down. The prefix you means good. Good. Second part of the word is angelion, which you might hear in the word the word angel, which meant messenger. Uh, this word angelion, which means message or news. So the gospel is a good message or good news. The English translation, of course, of this is evangels. This is why the proclamation of the good news is called evangelism or evangelization. Well, last week, as I mentioned, we took a deep look at who Paul was, both before his conversion to faith in Christ and then after his call to be an apostle. And this morning, we're going to look at the preamble, the larger preamble to his letter in the first seven verses of chapter one. Will you please stand with me and let's read it together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. I don't know if you're aware, but studies uh, reveal that decreasing numbers of people who profess to be Christians today can articulate the essentials of biblical Christianity. Um, Decreasing numbers of Christians truly possess a biblical worldview. Um, we are sorely lacking in our understanding. It may be why we are so reticent in our time to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, because maybe we don't fully understand it. There is a great need among us, among Christians today in the world, to revisit the gospel and to really become familiar with its its fundamentals, its essentials. So we're going to talk this morning in, in Paul's letter to the Roman Christians about the gospel. And I want to just share eight keys in these seven verses to understanding this good news. And the first observation here is that the gospel is of God. It's of God. Find it in verse 1. Paul introduces himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. 
set apart for the gospel of God. Now, we often hear the phrase, we would say the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To say that the gospel is the gospel of God is to say that God is its origin, its originator, its initiator. It's not a matter of human origin. It's not a matter of human invention. The apostles didn't invent it. The early church didn't create it, come up with it, conjure it up. The gospel is God's plan for the reconciliation of the world that was lost and in rebellion against him. Jesus himself encapsulated the gospel to his friend Nicodemus when he said, for God so loved the world, God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Well, I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of Christians who have this kind of good cop, bad cop view of Jesus and the Heavenly Father, that God the Father is kind of the stern man in the sky, you know, the old man with the long beard that you're a little bit afraid of, and Jesus is the good cop. And, and he's, he's the lover. Understand this, that God is the lover. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. In chapter 5, verse 8 of Romans, Paul put it in these words, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The prophet Isaiah saw it coming 700 years before Christ. When he said, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is Messiah Jesus, the Christ, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Apostle Peter expressed it this way to his Jewish audience, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Hear that? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was no accident. This was not just some kind of quirk of, of history. This is the foreknowledge of God. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, the first most basic conviction underlying all authentic evangelism, underlying the gospel itself, is that the gospel is of God. He is its author. He is its originator. He is its initiator. He is its perfecter. What we have to share with the world is not a mere random collection of human speculations or human opinions, nor a self-help technique, nor a philosophy, nor even a religion. It is instead God's good news for a lost world. Secondly, Paul wants us to understand that the gospel is in the scriptures. Verse 2. Scripture originated with God. The gospel comes in fulfillment of promises God made through the Old Testament prophets. He entrusted his message to men that he chose to speak for him, and what the prophets wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit became holy scriptures. 
And the Old Testament continually points beyond itself to a time of fulfillment, an age that was to come. There's an essential continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes we, we look at the Old Testament and we say, wow, that's so different from what we read in the New. But understand this, that the gospel didn't come, shouldn't have come as a total surprise to the apostles because God had already promised it through his prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. Speaking of the gospel, the apostle Peter wrote this, that concerning this salvation, the salvation that was to come through Jesus Christ, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You know, a lot of times in the Old Testament, you'll read the word oracle, the oracle of that was given to so-and-so. And the word oracle means burden. And there's this sense, as Peter writes these words, of the burden that the prophets carried. Searching and inquiring carefully, inquiring, what is it, God? What is it, Holy Spirit, that you're trying to reveal through me? I love this from a pastor named Mike Bullmore. I don't know him, but I found this, this quote. He said, the entire Old Testament is pregnant. The entire Old Testament is pregnant with the message of the Bible. Great imagery. In other words, we can say that the Old Testament is pregnant with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is round with the gospel. Granted, in the earlier stages of salvation history, the gospel is more difficult to detect. But as salvation history progresses, the shape of and the promise of the gospel becomes more evident. So as we look throughout the Old Testament, we see it is increasingly easy to detect the specific contours and the specific content of the gospel. The gospel is in utero in the Old Testament. Someone said years ago, and I've always remembered this phrase, that um, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. See, Jesus was quite clear that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. He confronted the Pharisees when he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. After his resurrection, he appeared to two of his disciples. You might remember this story on uh, on the road to Emmaus, the town of Emmaus. And they were dejected because Jesus had been crucified. They hadn't heard yet about his resurrection. And, and as he appeared to them. They didn't recognize him. But in the course of the conversation, he said this to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, it's all there in the Old Testament. There's a continuity between the Old and the New. The prophets promised it. 
The apostles witnessed it. All scripture, both Old and New Testaments, is from God, and all of it centers on the gospel, which is about Jesus. And so next Paul says that the gospel is about Jesus Christ in verses 3 and 4. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel of God is the gospel concerning his son. God's good news is about Jesus. He is the content. He is the substance. He is the center of the gospel, which tells us, and hear this now, that the gospel is about a person, not a principle. The gospel is about a person, not a philosophy. The gospel is about a person, not a religion. Again, the reformer John Calvin, similarly commenting on these verses, said this, that the the whole gospel is contained in Christ. Therefore, to move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. The Bible teaches that God's Son, Jesus Christ, is both fully human and fully God. Verse 3 of Romans 1 asserts his humanity, that he was descended from David according to the flesh. tells us, first of all, that he's human, establishes his physical ancestry. But don't miss this, that the son of David is also an Old Testament title for the promised Messiah, or in Greek, Christ. So Matthew begins his gospel with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Messiah. Christ. In Matthew 21, 14 through 16, it's the the story of what we think of as the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem a week before he was crucified. And we read there that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. See, the chief priests and the scribes were clearly jealous of Jesus because of his power and his authority, that he was healing people, the blind and the lame, But what sent them over the edge, just made their heads explode on this occasion, was that the children were calling Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. They were calling him Messiah, and the word Hosanna means, save us now, son of David. And they couldn't tolerate the idea that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus' answer really sent them over the edge because his response is from Psalm 8 and it's a reference to worship and Jesus is saying, look guys, not only am I Messiah, but I am God. I am God. 
What a great segue to the observation that verse 4 declares his deity. The gospel of God concerning his son who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as, as son of David reveals his humanity here, son of God reveals his deity. And some have read this and they've become confused and they've, they've jumped to the erroneous conclusion that Jesus did not, in fact, become God's son until the resurrection. So they, as they read, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And, and, and that thought that he didn't become Jesus or he didn't become God's son until the resurrection couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, it was the basis of several uh, early heresies in the church. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus, stay with me here with this, Jesus is the Son of God in eternity. The Son of God in eternity. That is from eternity past to eternity future. We have to attach those words, past and future, because of our finite minds. But I didn't say Jesus was. I said Jesus is the Son of God in eternity. And the Bible is overwhelmingly clear on this point. For example, the writer of the book of Hebrews began his letter long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world through whom also he created the world. If Jesus was there at the creation, if he is, in fact, the creative agent in the Godhead, he is eternal God. He is the radiance and the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You might remember in John 1, John began his gospel, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus himself said to Jewish leaders, they said, Are you greater than our father Abraham? And Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. The Bible also informs us that Jesus was called the Son of God at his incarnation at his enfleshment. And the angel said to her, this is Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So Jesus is the Son of God in eternity. He was called the Son of God at his incarnation. Don't miss us as well that Jesus was called the Son of God at his baptism. Matthew 3, when Jesus was baptized, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
So what does verse 4 mean? It means that having finished his work by his life, his suffering, and his death, God declared Jesus to be the Son of God, finally and irrefutably by his resurrection, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by a, a mighty act of the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That word declared there is the word uh, horizo. It's the word from which we get our word horizon. And, and it, it means to, to mark something off by boundaries. For example, from that term comes that word horizon, which refers to the, the line of demarcation, doesn't it, between the earth and the sky. And in an infinitely greater way than the divine sonship of Jesus Christ was marked off with absolute clarity by his resurrection. It's the resurrection that sets him apart. It's the resurrection that authenticates his claim to deity. Uh, A theologian named Robert Mounts said, had Jesus not risen from the dead, He would be remembered today only as a Jewish moralist who had some inflated ideas about his own relationship to God and made a number of ridiculous demands on those who wanted to be his disciples. On the other hand, if it's true that he rose from the dead, then his teachings about himself are true and his requirements for discipleship must be taken with all seriousness. The reformer Martin Luther commenting on this said, Here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of the Holy Scripture. That is that everything, everything must be understood in relationship to Christ. Fourth, Paul says that the gospel is for the nations. It's for the nations. Verses 5 and 6, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The word nations there is ethne, ethnic, ethnicity, and it means every people group on the face of the earth. Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, we'll see this in a couple of weeks, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Matthew 28, 18-19, you remember the Great Commission, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnicities, all the people groups in the world. See, if we're committed to world mission, if we're to be committed to world evangelization, you and I have to be liberated from all pride of race, of nation, of tribe, of caste, of class, and acknowledge that God's gospel is intended for everyone without exception and without distinction. Fifth, Paul says that the gospel is unto the obedience of faith. It's unto the obedience of faith in verse 5. What does this mean? First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you and I are saved by our obedience. If that were true because of how shabby our obedience is, 
how sporadic, how intermittent. None of us could stand before God. Paul says here in Romans, we stand by grace. Nor does it mean that that to be saved, we have to have both faith and obedience, as though both are necessary grounds for being right with God. What it does mean is that the gospel, this gospel of Jesus, this gospel of God concerning his son Jesus, is personally received by faith, and personal faith then leads us to personal obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience is the outflow of genuine faith. It's not a second condition for salvation, but it's the indication that salvation has taken place. An Old Testament character named Abraham is considered the father of everyone who is justified by faith, and of Abraham it is said, by faith Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Faith always precedes obedience. Jesus said to his disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And there are some who argue that it's possible to accept Jesus Christ as Savior without surrendering him as Lord. But that is not possible. He is Lord. Authentic faith always will result in the progressive submission of our lives to his will, and to his authority. Sixth, Paul says that the gospel is for the sake of his name. It's for the sake of his name. Paul's desire was that the nations would come to the obedience of faith for one purpose. And it wasn't about getting butts in seats in church. There was one purpose, the glory of and the honor of the name of Jesus. Every other evangelistic motivation, every other impulse pales in comparison to this. To the Philippian believers, Paul wrote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end of the gospel, the goal of the gospel, the goal of world evangelization is this, that Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus, would be exalted, that the name of Jesus would be confessed. Apostle Peter wrote that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We're on the home stretch here. Number seven, the gospel is by God's love and grace. It's by God's love and grace. Romans 1, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you notice with me, first of all, that when God calls us into a relationship with himself, his motivation is always love. It's always love. And that loving call is to become his very own, to be saints, which means not a football team from New Orleans. It means to be his holy ones. Hagioi is the Greek there. It means his holy ones, those whom he has loved, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has set apart to be his special people. It's a statement of identity. It's what we affirm when we sing, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. It's a statement of identity. When God calls us in love, grace is what we receive, and peace is what we experience. Peace with God, peace with each other, peace within ourselves. And if that's your desire, then the good news, number eight, is that the gospel is for you. It's for you. You also are among them, called to belong to Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is for you if you have been called to belong to Jesus. So in closing, wrapping this up, let me ask you, have you heard God calling to you? Have you, have you sensed that he's drawing you? Jesus said, no one can come to the, come to me unless my Father in heaven draws him or her? Have you sensed the Spirit of God prompting you, nudging you, perhaps even screaming to you to put your faith in God's Son, Jesus? If you have not heard that call, here's the bad news. If you have not heard that call, if or if you never do hear that call, then it may mean one thing, that God has not called you to belong to himself. But here's how I know that's not true of you. I'm here as his spokesperson, inviting you, urging you, to accept God's only provision for the predicament that you face, which is that you, like all of us, were, are separated from him by your sin. God sent me here this morning and put you in the seat where you are to invite you to believe in his son Jesus. And when you do, here's what I know. He will not condemn you. He will not scold you. Paul will will tell us later, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, he will welcome you with those same open arms that Jesus held open as he was crucified in your place on the cross. He will welcome you, and he will embrace you, and you will become his. So let me just run back through each of these. The gospel is of God. The gospel is in the scriptures. The gospel is about 
Jesus Christ. The gospel is for the nations. The gospel is unto the obedience of faith. The gospel is for the sake of his name. The gospel is by God's love and grace. And the gospel is for you. It's for you. My prayer this morning is that you would receive it, that you would simply put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that you join a church. It doesn't mean that you sign something, that you join a club. It means that you personally, in your heart, between you and God, you say, God, I understand who I am, that apart from Jesus Christ, I am separated from you by my sin, by my failure to meet your righteous standard. And I acknowledge that that Jesus is the only solution to my predicament, that through his death and his burial and his resurrection, that he paid the penalty for my sin and opened the door that I would have, that I could be reconciled with you. And so I'm trusting in what he accomplished for me, not, not in my goodness, not in my merit, simply in what he accomplished for me, for my salvation. And because your word says that that is true, I receive it by faith. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this gospel, this gospel of God concerning your son, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that there is salvation in no one else and that you have uh, extended this message to us here today. And Lord, now that we've heard it, we're accountable to it. And so, Lord, I pray that those who have heard it today, if they don't know you, that they would respond in faith. And for the rest of us, Lord, that we would be reminded of the incredible gift that your gospel really is to us. And that we would be about the work of sharing it with others. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for this church. Lord, would you continue to have your way in our lives that our faith would result in radical obedience. That the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up and glorified in our lives, in our communities, in our world. We pray it in his name. Amen.